0: To the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, we are wrapping up tonight our uh, series on Improbable Icons. How many of you have uh, had a chance, maybe, if you haven't been here, but to sort of catch up on the podcast and maybe listen to all of them? Anyone? Anyone? you get a sticker. Just kidding. Uh, but, but you might want to check them out. Now, the, the, the whole point of this series is to say, look, we need people that we can kind of look to and look up to and, and maybe say, look, what is it about uh, their life that we can learn from or see? And uh, we see kind of a distortion of this in our culture's fascination with celebrities. We kind of, oh, wow, you know. But but the, the answer, I think, is not to swing to the other side and say, well, you don't need to look at anybody's life and you don't need any heroes. I think the answer is to say, well, what are the stories? What are some stories of men and women that we can kind of look to? Well, primarily, the Scripture comes to us in stories just like, they, uh, like those, stories of, of uh, men and women as they're living out their faith and living out what it means to be the people of God. But there's something very encouraging that you discover early along the way is that the people that you look to in the pages of Scripture and, and tend to sort of say, wow, you kind of realize, hey, there's also something about their lives that maybe was not what you expected. And that's why the, the, whole, the, the series is not just icons, but improbable icons. And so in the first week, we talked about Nehemiah being uh, so ordinary, and yet his life is a, stands as a rebuke to our culture's fascination with things that are fantastic and grand and big. And, and Nehemiah is an icon of faithfulness. He tells us to stay steady and do things well and serve where we are. And, and the second week, we talked about Ruth, and, and, and Ruth stands as this icon of, anybody? What was it? Commitment, that's right. I, I, the truth is, I actually kind of blanked out there, so thanks for the help. Uh, I was just buying a little time, but that was also very helpful, and a good quiz. You will get a sticker after the service. Um <laughs> Ruth is an icon of commitment. And and what's remarkable about her story is she finds herself in this place where all things are kind of going wrong. Things are going wrong for her mother-in-law and yet she goes beyond obligation, beyond what's expected. And because of her Hesed love, her steadfast commitment, first to Naomi and then to Boaz, God shows his steadfast love on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. And we talked about what does it mean to take a risk and throw yourself at the feet of the Redeemer and say, God, help? And last week we talked about Daniel. Daniel is an icon of resistance while living within Babylon. And we said, okay, it's not fair to say just carte blanche, you know, but We can't say quite that, you know, America, Babylon. But we also can't say that America equals Jerusalem. And so we said, well, what does it mean then to be Daniel, to belong to the people of God and yet living like a colony within the world? And how, do we, how does that change the way we do business and, and do life? Or does it change it? Should it change it? We talked about all of that last week. Tonight we're talking, we're wrapping up, and we're doing this last one here on Esther. And Esther is is a fascinating story. And, uh, and, and maybe some of you have, have uh, saw the movie that came out, I don't know, was it a year ago or so, A Night with the King or whatever it was. And, and, uh, and, and so maybe you're familiar with the story or maybe you're um, you're, you're, um, you just remember it from church or Sunday school days. And the Esther story, there's a lot that's remarkable about it. And um, the backdrop here, again, is, is Persia. And if you're trying to figure out, you know, if I had been uh, maybe more kind to you, I would have done these icons in somewhat of a chronological progression. You know, we would have started with Ruth. And then we would have gone to Daniel and then we would have gone to Nehemiah and then ended here with Esther. But that's roughly the chronology of this. So you remember we've, we've recapped each week a little bit about exile and how you know Judah found itself taken captivity by the Babylonians and then the Babylonians were overtaken by the Persians. And it, it's, just this, it's this strange... Uh, situation that these Jewish people find themselves in. Well, Daniel was living in Babylon. By the time we get to Esther, or this story of Esther, it takes place after that. It takes place after Persia has now, is now ruling what was the Babylonian Empire. This is post-539 BC, and, and, and it's not, you know, Nehemiah is kind of later, in the mid-400 BC, so we're not sure exactly where the story is, maybe somewhere in there. But she finds herself um, as this orphan, as this Jewish girl who, whose parents have died and she's being raised by Mordecai and, uh, and with some interesting situations that happened to her. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 2. This is where we'll start and we're really just going to pick three sections here of this book. Uh, it's always hazardous to teach through one whole book in one evening and yet I think sometimes that can be good to make us see kind of the broad strokes and the big picture and all that. So um, Esther chapter 2 verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Excuse me. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure. And was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her mother, when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of uh, Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was who had charge of the harem. Now. I needed to fill in a little bit more backstory, and so I apologize for that. But here's what's going on, because all, all, all what they've told you up until this point has not been a story of any Jewish person. Mordecai is kind of the introduction of this is where God's people really find themselves in the story. But what's happened in Esther chapter 1 is uh, this king is, is having this party, and he's got these nobles and these officials, and he wants his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and... Mm, in a manner of speaking to parade her in front of these guys so they could all see how beautiful she was and queen vashti was maybe the first one standing up for women's rights and women's dignity and says no i'm not going to do that you will not objectify me at this male drunken party and so she doesn't come and and the king is sort of perplexed what do i do about this the story has some Uh, Not so G-rated moments, but we'll try to tastefully talk through them. And the the king says, what am I going to do about this? And he talks to his officials, and they basically say to him, if you don't make an example of her, all the women in the land will learn not to listen to their husbands. The beginning of a liberation movement. (gasps) And so the king says, okay, we, we can't have this. We can't have women insubordinate to men. And so... It's a Persian king that espouses this man as the king sort of, literally, uh, mentality. And he says, well, fine, we'll tell Vashti she's no more queen. And so she gets her crown removed, and he kind of goes on being king. And after a while, he, they kind of say to him, hey, remember, you, you kind of need to choose a new queen. You can't just, you know... Anyway, so he says, all right, time to choose a new queen. So they, they basically organize an elaborate uh, beauty contest of sorts, and Esther is uh, one of the young women taken to be put in the citadel of Susa under the care of Haggai. Now, the story of Esther, uh, to me, raises a number of questions. And the way I want to approach this book, uh, we, we've sort of taken different approaches with the different books, but with this story, I want us to think, this, think through three questions as we talk about this story. And the first question is this. How much are we really in control? How much are we really in control? control. When you read the story of Esther, it's remarkable in that there's not a lot of power that Esther or Mordecai or the Jewish people as a whole have in this situation. We know they're living in Persia. They're at the whim of this king who sometimes maybe seems a little mad. I don't know. And you think for a minute, if we were to make a list, what are all the things that Esther did not choose? Esther didn't choose to be a woman. Esther didn't choose to be a Jew. Esther didn't choose to be carried off by the Babylonians or for her grandfathers or whatever it was to be carried off by the Babylonians. Esther didn't choose to be under Persian rule. It wasn't Esther who was living in Judah and living in unfaithfulness to Yahweh and because of that was as if she could say, well, yeah, I did." She, she had nothing to do with that herself. Esther didn't choose to be an orphan. She didn't choose to have her father or her mother die. She didn't choose to be raised by her cousin Mordecai. She didn't choose to be entered into a beauty contest. This is not Esther's dream. We see an edict happening around the time when she's a young woman, and she finds herself, oh no, caught up in this. She didn't choose to be part of the king's harem. How does a good Jewish girl end up in a Persian king's harem? These are choices Esther did not make. We pick up the story in verse 12. Before, uh, this is kind of uh, the storyteller explaining to us how the beauty contest was going to work. Persian queen instead of American idol, I guess. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the woman, For the women, six months with oil and myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how, now some of you that feels like that's how long it takes you to get ready in the morning, but probably not. And this is how she would, I'm just kidding, how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. Uh, Many of you in the room will know the difference between being part of a harem and being part of a group of concubines. But this is the, explaining how it works. And she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther the young woman, Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihail to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her, and she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other versions. And so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Esther didn't choose for the king to choose her. When you think about all these choices that were not in her control, I I want us to maybe, in a way, de-romanticize this story. The Bible doesn't tell us this story as a love story. It doesn't tell us that Esther had a crush on the king and adored him. It doesn't tell us any of that. And we are subtle enough readers to know that they weren't playing cards all night when she's called in to the king. These are situations she does not want we, we for all we know, she did not choose them, and for all we know, did not want to be in. And what I think about with this story, the first question that it raises is, how much are you really in control of your life? We love to believe that our life is a product of all of our choices, and we did this, and therefore I got this, and if I did this right, then I'll have this retirement, and I'll have this and we like to imagine that we're in control of our destiny and of our faith, that if we will make certain choices, then, then this, will, this is how life will work. The Old Testament professor chair, the guy whose Old Testament department at Fuller Seminary is named after him, he's famous for saying, Proverbs says, this is how life works. Do, this, do these things and life will work this way. And Lamentations is the people saying, we did and it didn't. How much are we really in control of life? What are the things you and I didn't get to choose? Now, if you were to think about this, it could, you could think of some deeply hurtful things. So I, I, I didn't choose to have my spouse cheat on. me. I didn't choose to have this illness. I didn't choose to see my son rebel. I, I didn't choose to, to, this, to do this. I didn't choose to be born here. I didn't choose this or that. And it is a bit sobering to say to a people that are in love with our idea of control, the story of Esther makes us question that and says, really? Is there? How many things are you really in control over? How much control do you really have? It's interesting when you think about what wealth does to a community, because wealth gives you the illusion of control. You see Xerxes in the first chapter convinced that his wealth and his kingship means that he can snap his fingers and his queen will come. You see Xerxes acting on this assumption of, I'm in control. And you juxtapose his illusion of control with Esther's lot in life. She didn't choose any of that. I suggest to you that the men and women who wrote the stories of Scripture were men and women who were painfully aware of how little in control of their lives they were they didn't choose for the babylonians they didn't choose for, didn't choose for this to happen or that to happen. this to, life expectancy to be this age but what happens as civilization and progress happens is you start to believe that we can orchestrate things you know what's that commercial where the green line kind of leads you in your path to like your dream retirement or whatever you know it's like just follow the the moving green line walk a later thing you know oh, is that all I need to do? Give me the number of that guy. And anyone who's seen their retirements go through this and this in the last several years kind of say, you know, it's just doesn't, there's just too much we're not in control over. In a few days, we're going to take a trip to Iowa um, where my father-in-law farms, and he farms in a very... um, quaint way. Let's say it that way. Uh, he, he loves just to do things with his hands. And you know, who cares? Who needs machines? You know, yes, I may move slower, but I, that means I get to be outside longer, you know. So he, he loves all of that. And uh, he loves the dirt. He farms because he loves the dirt. And um, it's interesting to me every time I, I go to Iowa, I'm, all, I'm always amazed by how much people talk about the weather. It's the weather? Well, what else would a farming community talk about? So, well, go, I mean, and maybe some of you who don't are not familiar, and I wasn't until about 12 years ago when we started going there. But, you know, there's irrigation, there's this, there's that. Yeah, there's all of those modern gadgets and technology. But you know what? The weather still matters. The weather still... And for all the things that farmers can control, farmers know they can't control the weather. They can plan around it. They can work this. But there's just, there's just... So how in control we in our city suburb where you can run to Target or run to Walmart or do something online or order a book and it's there on your doorstep the next day. How much do we really think we can script and maneuver and orchestrate our lives? I think the story of Esther says, rethink that. Rethink how much control you really have. The second question I think this story raises is a very interesting one. It's the question of where is God? Esther is remarkable for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons it's remarkable is it does not mention God anywhere. Not his name, not a vague description of him, not El, not Yahweh, not any, just, there's nothing. There is no God in Esther's story. Some of you might say, well, how did this, why is this in the Bible again? We'll come to that. It became a very important story for the Jewish people, but God is not mentioned in this story. Now, for any of us who have gone through situations, if even raising the question of how much are you not in control over brings up some painful memories, I, I, I know that. Then, then all of you understand that question. Well, where is God? Where was he then? How come he was not here? We don't know the reason God is not mentioned in Nestor, but here are some guesses. Maybe it was disappointment. Maybe there was too many years of sorrow under Babylon, too much hardship, that would seen too many people die, heard too many stories, seen too many tragedies, seen too much, experienced too much pain, that there's so much disappointment that they're not going to tell a story and assume that God's in it because where's he been anyway? Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's just a kind of humble reluctance to assign something to God because we're just, we're, there's just a reluctance to do that. Think about the story of Esther. It's almost, a, it's a very well crafted story with a lot of ironic moments and a lot of. If you're into storytelling, you'd see, you'd see you'd notice right away the ironies in the story. It's well put together, and, and um, there's a remarkable uh, number of key coincidences that happen in the story of Esther. Mordecai happens to hear a plot to assassinate the king. And guess who the queen is? Oh, it's his cousin that he raised. So he happens to tell her, and then she saves the king, and then she makes sure that the king records it down. And then what happens is the night after Haman announces this, or contrives this plot to to execute Mordecai and all that stuff, the king happens to have a insomnia that night, and he can't sleep. And instead of going for a walk, the king says, you know what will put me to sleep? Somebody grab the scrolls of the chronicles of the kings of Persia. (laughs) he happens to ask for that scroll and he happens to the reader happens to read from the scroll that tells the story of Mordecai who saved the king's life because he happened to hear a story an assassination plot and the king happens to remember we never did anything for this guy did we and so the next morning he calls Haman in and says hey Haman if there was a guy that you really wanted to honor what would you do for him? This is almost like a Shakespeare comedy, ironic moment. And Haman's like, oh, well, this is what I'd do. I'd plan a parade. I would do this. And, and the king says, great, do that for Mordecai. Who? Mordecai. What? These coincidences, these comedic moments, it's just, it's fantastic storytelling. But I wonder if the storyteller tells it as coincidences because they're reluctant of saying God did this. Hey, it's been a while since God, we know that God has spoken or acted or done anything. Maybe we ought to just say it was a coincidence. This is a very different posture than, say, our posture that assumes that a close parking spot to JCPenney was God's. I mean, I but think about that. Here's the people that are reluctant to say that God was behind the That, oh, it just happened. And we're sort of like, oh, yep, that was God. Yep, that was God. Uh Uh-huh, that was God. And something bad happens. Where is God? (laughs) Maybe it's not disappointment. Maybe it's not reluctance. Maybe it's inspiration. Maybe the reason the storyteller doesn't name God in the story because he's trying to tell the Jewish people that God uses people to make history. Maybe the storyteller is trying to say, you may be in Persia, you may be in this situation, but while you're waiting on God to deliver you, don't be passive. Which kind of leads to the third question I think the story raises. Where are you? Where are you? The storyteller tells us of a remarkable moment here in chapter 4. You can turn there. Esther chapter 4. We'll read it in verse 11 all the way to verse 16. And all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces... Uh, okay, so here's what's happened here. Just a little backstory again, the, the earlier part of the chapter. Uh, Haman's got the, the king to sign into law that, that all the, the Jewish people will be killed. And, and so they're... they're uh, in verse three, you can read that in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning, and the Jews are fasting, and they're weeping, and they're lying in sackcloths and ashes. And Mordecai is is weeping, and, and Esther is saying, "Hey, Mordecai, come uh, and, and send some messenger for Mordecai." Mordecai says, "I will not come to the king, uh, come to the queen, uh, um, because." To appear in a court, you've got to put your clothes back on. I'm happy. I'm so sad. I've got to be in these sackcloth and ashes. I'm just not going to do it. And so there's this messenger that's going back and forth. And in verse 11, um, Esther instructs the, the, the messenger to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death. Unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But the 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Mordecai has been sending words through the messenger saying, Esther, look, the king's gonna kill all of our people. You've gotta do something. And she's saying, look, you know the rules. I can't just go to him. If I go to him unannounced, unsummoned, he'll kill me. That's the law, that's the way it goes. But unless he extends the scepter. And then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Wow. First, she's kind of saying, Mordecai, look, there's no way I can do this. Uncle Morty, I can't. Mordecai is saying, look, don't think you're going to survive. <laughs> God will raise someone else, but maybe you've come to this position for this. And the question that the storyteller is asking us is where are you? Where are you? The book of Esther has been used in liberation theology to say, look, it is humans that make history, it's people who, who do stuff, and therefore we've got to do stuff. And that may be a, a, a left turn we're not going to make, but there's something still to the question. Where are you? Where are you? For all the things that Esther did not choose, the climactic moment of this story is the one choice she does have. Didn't choose to be a girl. Didn't choose to be a Jew. Didn't choose to be chosen. Didn't choose to be the queen. Didn't didn't choose it. But this one moment, she has a choice. And it requires... Selflessness requires courage, requires the willingness to kind of put her life on the line for her people. Esther is in many ways an icon of courage, choosing to risk her own life for the sake of others. We know how the story ends. She chooses to do it. She goes. And it all works out well because she had this courage to act. The reason Esther is included in the Hebrew Scriptures is because what results from this story is a feast called Purim. And Purim comes from the word pure. This is all in the book itself. No extra resources needed to study this out. The word pure itself means lot. And it has to do with Haman casting lots to see which was going to be the, day, the appointed day to execute Mordecai and the Jews. And God turned the lot of the Jews. What Haman meant for destruction, God turned for deliverance. But to me, this whole story is about a lot. A lot. What is your lot? What is your lot in life? We read this, we heard this Old Testament reading in Ecclesiastes, and it's good to be thankful for your lot in life, and it sounds kind of nice. And, you know. But really, if we were to s- sit here for a moment and say, what, what didn't you get to choose? What was given to you as your lot in life? I, I didn't choose that disease. I didn't choose this difficulty. I didn't choose this. What is your lot? And yet, could it be that even in the midst of our lot in life, God is behind the scenes and that God is looking to work and to act. But He's looking for people with a kind of courage that say, you know what? There's a lot I can't choose. There's a lot I can't control. But Here's something that I can do. Here's something that I can choose. Here's something that I can Have the courage to act on, to change. What can you choose in the midst of today? Today. Tonight. What is that place that you say, well, I, you know, and maybe it's not negative. Maybe some of you are here like, well, I, you know, my lot in life is okay right now. All right. Well, then what's in your power for the sake of another, that you can use for the sake of another? What is that? Is it extra time? Is it a skill? Part of living as the people of God means saying, all right, this is my lot. And yet, in the midst of this, in the midst of 10,000 things I didn't choose, there's a few places where I can choose. And the question is, will you make a choice that's for yourself or for the sake of others? Esther says, make a choice that's courageous. Make a choice that's for the sake of another. Make a choice that says, you know what, I didn't choose to be, to grow up in America, but gosh, we sure have a lot. You know what, I'm going to make a choice to find a way to give overseas. I'm going to support a missionary, or I'm going to sponsor a child, or I'm going to do this, or we're going to go on a trip, or we're going to... Maybe it's something like that. My sense is that for all of us, we could think about where that moment is, where that place is. You know what I think is remarkable about Esther? Is you see her initially... Shying away from this and saying, no, "I can't do that." You know the rules. I just know. And isn't it our first response that whenever something presents itself, we say, yeah, I, "No, I, I can't do that." I, I wonder if part of the way that we find redemption, even in our own lot, is by being willing to look out to someone else's lot. I wonder if part of how the kingdom works is instead of being inward and saying, well, the, look, i got my own problems, and I've got debt, and I've got unemployment. I, can, I can't deal with this, and I can't deal with There's no way. That if part of how God redeems our lot in life is by asking us to look around and see someone else's lot in life. And when Esther says, you know what, I, ca- I cannot be here knowing that I was here and see suffering and slaughter happened. I must act with courage. Some of you are here with hurt and with pain. It's just I just can't see beyond this. Well, and that's—it's okay to go through the season of almost um, cocooning. You know, I—I I, I think that's healthy. But I think there might be a time where part of how God redeems the lot that we wouldn't have chosen—the divorce—the bankruptcy, the disease, the devil, whatever, the thing that we would not have, the way that God redeems it is when he says, look out at someone else's lot. How can you act on their behalf? And in giving comfort, we find comfort. In giving encouragement, we find encouragement. In serving, we find strength. In losing our lives, we find it. That's, I think, the story of Esther. Saying, if I die, I die. I've got to do something here. Let's pray. In a very real way, Esther gets to participate in the Jesus story. Though again, she doesn't know it. She saves her people from genocide, and because of that, her people survive. And because of that, 400 or so years later, there's a Jewish girl named Mary through whom Jesus comes into the world. Could there have been this Jewish girl named Mary without this other Jewish queen named Esther? We don't know. We don't know that God couldn't have used some other way, but we do know this. Because she was courageous about her action, she got to be part of the Jesus story. You take a moment and just say, Holy Spirit, I give you my lot in life. I didn't choose this, I didn't choose that, I didn't I didn't choose to get fired, I didn't choose that, I didn't. But would you lay down your lot before Jesus? I surrender it, Lord. Maybe it's a blessed, pleasant, successful, influential lot. In some ways, by living in America, all of us have Relatively speaking, a good lot. we got running water, we've got peaceful elections, we've got opportunity. Who can say that, but that we've been brought to this position for such a time as this? Who can say but that God has allowed us to have this lot in life? I'm not saying caused, I'm not saying did, but who can say but that God can use this place? Some of us could be challenged to give to some project overseas, to build a well, to build an orphanage. Some of us could be challenged to do do more than just a summer remodel project. Some of us could be challenged to give to each other here within the service to say, you know, I'm not just going to come on Sunday nights. I'm going to look for people to go out with afterwards and connect and invest in, encourage Spirit. We surrender to you our lot in life. We surrender it. The things we chose, the things we didn't choose, the place we find ourselves in tonight, we surrender it. Father, we know that you're sovereign. God, we want to say, Lord, give us the courage. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to act. Give us the courage to be a people that will not sit by and watch. We'll not sit by and watch something overseas. We'll not sit by and watch even something right here. Give us the courage to be people that would act. We'll say yes. And by your spirit, may those choices and those actions that we do have and that we can take Join us to the Jesus story. Join us to the story of Jesus redeeming the world. Jesus bringing bread to the hungry. Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth. We surrender to you. Lord. I pray that you bless each one here. May they have the courage. May they have the strength. May they have the eyes to see the position, the place, the lot, to turn it over to you. Teach us to live for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.